Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called super stocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hey everyone, welcome to the Growth Investors Secrets Podcast. Today, I am very fortunate to have not just the CEO of Nuvi, but the CFO of Nuvi as well. And some backstory here, I found Nuvi to be a very interesting company. I think right now, the market is not really understanding this company. And I think that is this overhang over spec companies that are in the EV industry. So that is why after digging a bit more into Nuvi, I found lots of gems. And today, I have I am very fortunate to have uh, two of the management team to come on board to share their insights about the company that they have created. Okay, so to start off, Gregory, uh, being the CEO of Nuvi, uh, could you share with us what inspired you to start Nuvi and what is the problem that you're looking to solve? Absolutely. I was lucky enough in 2010 to meet with the professor Willard Kempton uh, at the University of Delaware. Before that, I'd been working in the telecom industry and I was looking at you know, what could be my next opportunity. And so I met Willard at the University of Delaware, who had been working on the concept of vehicle to grid since 1996. That was very much the fruit of his life and uh, got really excited. I love you know, a few aspects. First, obviously, I was already convinced, you know, though that was still pretty early, that EVs would be you know, taking over. And I think we've past that point now. And I was looking at a great end-to-end solution that was already performing, was actually, he was uh, participating into the frequency regulation market in the PGM area, the regional transmission system operator in, in the East Coast of the United States. And so, no, he had a, a first solution and this was working well. So I got very, very excited. I uh, decided to start Nuvi. I convinced Willett to join me in starting Nuvi. And this is really how, how the story started, right? He had spent so many years in developing that technology. And he was so passionate about it. And he had considered all the aspects. So that's what has been driving me and, and very excited to be where we are today at the bottom of a gigantic hill. But it's just a great time to be pushing our technology out to market right now. Thanks for sharing. What about you actually, David? I know this is kind of a bit off script, but I'm just curious, um, why did you decide to go on to Nuvi? Because I see on your LinkedIn profile, you actually had a lot of other work experience. So what gave you that interest to come into such small company like Nuvi and to work in Nuvi? You know, it's a fantastic question, Jonathan. And I see we're a small company, but I see how big the market opportunity is. And electric vehicles, all of us who follow it know it's going to change the world. And I see Nuvi, as I did my own homework and had many places I could think of joining, that our technology is really at the core to transform the EV market and transportation and electricity. So you couldn't be at a luckier inflection point to be part of this if you're interested in the automotive space. 
Thank you, David. Now, before we head into the more specific questions, I think, Gregory, could you help the listeners understand Nuvi's business model and how the company makes money? Yes, absolutely. So let me take you the, the story from William Kempton. So in 1996, he was working on um, wind generation and understood how critical energy storage is for renewable generation in general and more specifically for wind. And uh, as you might remember, 1996 was also a previous wave of electric vehicle, one that, that didn't stick at the time. But still, he was looking at, at cars and he's like, you know, cars are parked you know, 95, 96% of the time. By the way, this is probably the worst investment we can do in our lifetime, right? It's to buy new cars every three or four years. Um, I know there's something about us being human. But he looked at that and thought, you know, electric vehicles have a big battery inside them and you have plenty of time to recharge it and so if you put a little bit more power electronics you are able to not just take ac from the grid convert it into dc into the battery but then you can take it back the dc from the battery and convert it back into ac to the grid from that point on then what you need you know the car becomes a storage on wheel basically when you do that and so then what you need is a platform that has the ability to aggregate a large number of vehicles make them look like a single large battery the, the concept is called virtual power plants right and with that virtual power plant, we can address a variety of energy markets. There's a lot of depth in the energy markets, right? It's not just about the arbitrage on the cost of the kilowatt hour. You've got some markets that are purely power capacity market where you are there, for example, a pickup plant. This is the same thing. It's there to, you know, making sure that if there's a peak of, of consumption, it's able to provide that surplus of energy that is needed at the time. So sometimes, you know, you have a surplus, sometimes you have a, a lack of energy. And so our business model is to access those energy markets going from firming generation on the wind and solar side, participating into the wholesale market, providing what's called ancillary services, also supporting the distribution network, but also helping the end customer optimize their bill, right, through time of use optimization and demand charge management. So on the one end, we can provide some revenue. And on the other hand, we are providing savings to the bill. And so then you combine that, this as a value. Our business model is basically to keep some of that value for us. Think about it as 30, 40%. And then we share their remaining 60 to 70% with the end customer. Now, sharing with the end customer might have different ways where it can be just writing them a check, but it could also be helping finance the whole thing. Therefore, we contribute to the financing of, of the vehicle, for example, of the vehicle and the charging station combination. From a high level, it's a revenue sharing. We keep 30 to 40%. We make sure that all the infrastructure is always working. We make sure that the charging station is well-maintained, for example, right? The charging station that breaks down is impacting us as much as it's impacting the user because if the charging station is broken down, we can't generate revenue with that, the vehicle that connects to it. So we have a very strong incentive to make sure that the infrastructure is always up and running, which is again, very synergistic with the needs from the driver. Thanks. I want to kind of drill in a little bit into the unit economics. For listeners who do not know, uh, unlike from where we come from in Singapore, the electricity rate is always the same 24-7. But I think, Gregory, could you just elaborate more how it works in the States? Because I understand that you have actually not just have had pilots in the States, but also in Europe as well. And I read some crazy articles where this man basically paid $4,000 to operate his fridge during winter when the a spike in the electricity demand. So could you help listeners to understand more about the dynamics in the electricity market? Yeah, so again, you get multiple layers. And I think when you talk about you know, the price is fixed in Singapore, this is the retail price. This is what you as a consumer, what you are paying. Now, very often you might have a different tariff for a consumer and the CNI site. Usually CNI site is going to have maybe some more valuable pricing and potentially also something called demand charge, which is basically a cost, not just of the 
kilowatt hours that they are consuming, but whatever is the peak of consumption that they are also using at any time. So this is all at the retail level. The next level on the pure energy side would be the wholesale market, at which point, no, it's a lot more volatile. But this is also a, a smaller price because when you pay at the retail level, you also pay for the distribution cost, the transmission cost. You also very often also pay for the tax that are added to the overall cost of the energy. And so if you can, like in the US, in California, as a consumer, we are getting more and more spread in what we call the time of use. As a retail level, at the time, we have different pricing depending on what time we are consuming energy. So for example, when you have a lot of solar like we have in California, actually one of the cheapest price is at the middle of the day because this is when the solar is, is generating a lot. So as a consumer, you have some incentive to absorb that surplus of energy. Now at the wholesale level, which we were talking about earlier, you might actually have negative pricing at those times. That means that there's so much energy on the grid that the grid manager is paying you and say, please, please take it away from me. I've got too much and I'm going to give you some money with it. It's not happening every day, but like in the south part of San Diego, where you have a lot of residential with a lot of rooftop solar, that happens. In north of San Diego, where you have more industries that happens very rarely that's on the energy cost and at the retail versus wholesale now you also have a lot of other services that are optimizing the use of the infrastructure and making sure there's always enough energy to fulfill the needs from the users because if for example a plant for any reason kind of shuts down you want to have something that's going to back it up and it's going to power that so it can be defined as like primary reserve secondary reserve tertiary reserves usually the primary reserve it's about the kind of instant mismatch between demand and supply. If, if somebody turns on the light, there's a little bit more demand. If somebody switch off their AC system, there's a lot less demand. So it goes always up and down and you have a forecast. And so you have some power capacity market that are covering that spread, that gap between what you expect anytime between the demand and the supply. That's in normal operation. Now, when you get into second and tertiary reserve, this is usually more when something happens. Let's say a plant shuts down for any reason and and then something else going to have to kick in. So you have the primary reserve is going to try to keep it. Then the secondary reserve will kick in and provide longer, you know, a few hours of energy, of power capacity. And then the tertiary could be like this. So many layers, many complexity. The strength of what we are doing is that our platform has the ability to access all those layers. And that's really where we are differentiating ourselves. This virtual power plant capability that we know we have qualified with multiple system operators around the world today. And we have demonstrated again and again that we have the ability to provide those services. Wow, thank you. That's a really comprehensive insight to what you guys are facing on the ground. Now, I want to dig in a little further into the unit economics. I know you have done a pilot in Europe and you have found that you can earn about $2,000 per car. And that is, correct me if I'm wrong, that is after sharing revenues with the user and Nuvi takes $2,000 per year for each car. I understand now you are kind of going not in the car market, the personal car market, but rather the buses. So could you just let the listeners know what are the kind of revenues that you can earn potentially from a bus or a truck per year? This $2,000 per vehicle per year of revenue then can be achieved. This is on a, what we call the 10 kilowatt charging station and a 25 kilowatt hour battery, actually 24 kilowatt hour battery. Those are ENV 200. And by the way, those have been on operation since September, 2016. So it's nearly five years now that we've been running this. And you know, we're very proud of having very happy customers and we're making sure that everything is always up and running for them. But so 10 kilowatt, 25 kilowatt hour, this ratio of one to 
2.5 is a good ratio to keep in mind. So now let's switch over to a school bus, which has a battery of, let's say, 155 kilowatt hour versus the 24 kilowatt hour I talked about earlier, which is about six times that, right? So what you can do is now rather than being at 10 kilowatt, you can be at 60 kilowatt. And what that means, you know, the map is very simple. It's proportional to the power capacity. So rather than generating $2,000, you can potentially you know, generate $12,000 with that. If you had a 100 kilowatt on, let's say, 250 kilowatt hour battery, now you can generate $20,000 if the matrix is the same. Now, the value of them on the depends from market to market, but also you might have the ability to stack different types of services. And so you now on the school bus, we see opportunities now on the 60 kilowatt, we see opportunities going from like $8,000, all the way to maybe $20,000 on the 60 kilowatts charging stations that we have in the 155 kilowatt hour buses that we are working on right now, for example, with, with Bluebird. So that's the range, that's the scale. And now you understand why this revenue basically allows to reduce the total cost of ownership by 25 five to 40% over the life of the vehicle. In case of a, like a Nissan Leaf, it's it's eight years. In case of a, of a school bus, no, we are looking at 12 years. Jonathan, I would say that's the status quo today, but as more electrification occurs and there's more energy demand on the grid, that creates more value for this additional resource to balance the grid. So although those are the economics we give and we use that for looking forward, we view there's more upside to those economics because there's going to be more need for what we do. Thank you. So I just want to tap a little bit more onto the volatility of the electric market because I think naturally when more electric vehicles come onto the market, we're not just talking about trucks, but also for consumers. Does it make sense to think in this way? So when more people come onto the grid, demand for electricity goes up. And therefore, when we see periods of high demand, we might see cost of electricity to go up. And therefore, this could potentially bring more revenues to Novi. Is that a right way to think about it? The mechanism is such that, for example, at the distribution level, when you have already quite a bit of renewable generation like rooftop solar, which already creates some volatility to the system, if you combine that with electric vehicles that are heavy loads at the end of the distribution system as well, now the distribution system might have to size for the peak might be 10 times the average, whereas today maybe the peak is two times the average. When you go from two times to 10 times, you have to put a lot more infrastructure. But on the other hand, the cost of that infrastructure is is being paid by the kilowatt hours that the consumers are consuming. And therefore, that's why the cost of the kilowatt hour might go up. Now, the ability of creating a bridge between the electric vehicles and the electric system which is what our platform is, right? That can allow you to really optimize the use of that infrastructure. And potentially the ideal goal, right, is when your peak is equal to your average. Now you are doing the most optimum use of the infrastructure. You know, with V2G, with Nuvis technology, you can reduce actually the peak and therefore make the cost of energy more equitable. And I think this is a very important notion. And I think this is something that people really underestimate. And that's why I think the, the awareness is building up right now. And that's why the word V2G is being use more and more. You know, we will come back to that on the definition of the word V2G. But this is why it's great. I mean, the awareness of, uh, hey, there's a serious problem that's coming about all these EVs that are going to be connected to the system. And we need to think about it now because later it will be too late. 
Thanks. Now, we see a lot of companies doing extremely well in the long term who provide mission critical services. For example, some companies I look at, for example, CropStrike, they actually defend companies from cybersecurity attacks. I think we've seen that being very prevalent and companies just can't afford to be breached and the cost of being breached is too high. So in your own words and from what you see on the ground, can you help us understand why you think UV is going to be mission critical in the coming years, in the next five to to 10 years. Yeah, you are looking at new ways to carry energy around rather than transporting it through the wires. Now you can transport the energy by vehicles. You know, here in California, we have something called public safety power shutoffs. This is when uh, the wind is blowing, especially in more rural areas. You might have trees hitting a transformer, sparking a fire. This is how PG&E went bankrupt, unfortunately. Here in San Diego, SDG&E has been actually shutting down those neighborhoods since 2007 because they are the similar incidents. But the advantage for SDG&E is that the, those are more rural areas with very few people living there. But still, people are not happy to hear that, hey, you know, I'm going to shut you down. I mean, last Christmas, literally on the 23rd, some part of the east side of San Diego were shut down because of the wind. Imagine a, a place where I can move around some school buses, for example, that, by the way, would not be used at that period. And I move them with their big batteries. I connect them to a charging station in some of those neighborhoods. And now I can power a bunch of houses. Think about what happened in Texas this winter, where you had this, this effect on all those power plants shutting down. Now, David had a Tesla parked in his garage and would have been able to power his house with that for multiple days. The way we are looking at it is just we are at the beginning of a range of applications and some of them are going to be mission critical. Some of them might be more comfort. Some of them, no, very consumer oriented. But we see ourselves as the infrastructure that then can provide those new applications. And when you merge that with autonomous vehicles, now it's a new world. I mean, as we are describing it sometimes, right, you think about it and here I'm going a little bit further away than just mission critical, but it's connected. Charging a vehicle, it's unidirectional. It's like a pager. So you just charge it. With V2G, you become bidirectional and so now you have a cell phone and if you had a very smart platform on top of it now you have a smartphone and think about all the applications that have been developed with our smartphones over the last 10-15 years and we we are convinced that we're going to see the same new world of application created at this intersection between energy and transportation. Hey, Jonathan, to add to that, the way I think about it, and it's what Gregory said earlier, that the vehicle is parked 96% of the time. There's a very expensive asset in that vehicle called a battery. And there's so many applications. We can use that asset for the customer who owns it to lower that cost of the vehicle and put that battery to use versus not doing anything. And as more vehicles transform and become electric, the need for that multiple applications, the asset becomes more critical. And as Gregory said, I had two electric vehicles parked in my home in Texas and my, it was dark in my house. And that's really unfortunate. It's dark and cold. And cold. <laughs> and so that doesn't need to happen. And it happens a lot all over the world. And V2G provides a solution to monetize and make that vehicle more valuable for the customer. Thank you. In fact, when I was studying Nuvi, I think it made a lot of sense. Rather than a power plant company buy more batteries to increase their storage capacity, because I understand sometimes even for windmills, even though they could look like they are spinning, but they're actually not generating extra or additional power because the battery on site is not able to store all the energy. And I was just thinking from a capital point of view, if you could spend $300,000 to buy just batteries alone, or you could spend $300,000 to buy a bus with a battery, 
this $300,000 has two economic use. So firstly, it is a storage of power. And secondly, it can provide services like school bus services or any other economic activities. All right, so thanks for the insight. Now, let's move on to the EV industry in general. We see that there's a race by EV players in the market to improve hardwares like drivetrains. We see X-Roll technologies doing that. We see people also trying to improve or build better electric cars. So we see this done by the OEMs and we see people trying to improve batteries. So why did you choose specifically the software route in the AV industry when everyone is trying to improve on the hardware to improve the entire experience for EVs? It's great to let everybody compete with each other and to be kind of an outlier and at least at the beginning. And it's great. And, and this is also what was making our life difficult before this awareness started to build up, which is, yeah, we might need something like that, but we'll need it later. I've talked to a lot of investors. As any entrepreneurs, I've talked to many, many investors and many, many told me how great everything I was doing was, but that they would not invest today. That's where the resiliency needs to kick in. But I was always very convinced about what we are doing and the criticality of what we are doing. And we are in the process of demonstrating it right now you know, with all the partnerships that we are setting up and, and the rollout that we are working on. I love this intersection. I'm an engineer. I like complex things. It's a lot of complexity we are dealing with, right? We are dealing with OEMs. We are dealing with charging station manufacturers, system operators, regulators, utilities. A lot of things are going on around us, but I've enjoyed the last 10 years of my life pushing UV and obviously very excited to see where we are today and even more excited about thinking about where we're going to be tomorrow. Hey, Jonathan, to add to that, one way we think about it, which is our software complements all the charging manufacturers and OEMs. So we're not here to pick one or develop our own and compete against others. We make them all valuable. It's like Intel. Intel powers the computer. Intel inside makes the computer more valuable. Our software inside a charging station makes it more valuable. And that's why, as Gregory said, we have multiple partners who make chargers and they want to partner with us to make them more valuable. And then we do the same with the OEM. We're agnostic. We're not just going to pick one OEM. We want to partner with all of them. So we see ourselves as a wide platform and we can disperse that intellectual property across many, many platforms. Now, for the benefits of the listeners, can I just confirm when you guys refer to OEMs, you are referring to EV manufacturers? Absolutely, yes. All right, thank you. Now, Gregory, you know, some investors have a misconception that Nuvi is just another hyped up spec in the EV space. In fact, we see a lot of EV companies listing through the spec route. But from what I see, you seem to be in the center of the electrical market. And from what you say, you seem to be the mastercard of Visa of energy transactions. So is this the right way to think about it? And could you elaborate with us? How do you see it from a strategic point of view? What we are going through right now is three big industries that are getting ready to collide. You got the utility industry, the vehicle OEM industry, and the oil industry. And they are all converging on one point, which is this bridge between the electrification of transportation and the electric system. And this is where we see that's exactly where we see. Coming back to your point about the SPAC and where we are, I think there are many things that we've been very careful on. And David joined us at the perfect time as we were finishing going through the process and getting everything ready. It's, it's a very complex process, especially when you're a small organization, but we passed it. Some people are still working, trying to go through the process and we did it, which shows one, the quality of the team that we have on board, our ability to bring you know, great people on board, such as David. But also we've been very careful in how we've been positioned 
positioning ourselves. And I hope investors see that. We talked about forecast before that we had to share with the investors as, as we were kicking off the process of the merging with newborn. But we understand the complexity of what we are doing. We know there is a huge ramp up, but we also know that what we are dealing with, especially at the fleet level, is very bulky and happens in groups. Setting up forecasts, we didn't try to say, hey, we're going to do $150 million next year. We didn't go there. We are working very hard to make that happen, but we have been very careful. And what we are working on right now is exactly how do we communicate better with investors? Because in reality, what we are doing, for example, when a vehicle is being deployed, it's like a licensing business model, right? Because we deploy a charging station, but then with the school bus, we have a 12-year recurring revenue that comes out of that. So that's very similar to what you would have with a licensing business model. We are working very hard, and I think during our next earning call, David and I will be able to take everybody through a little bit more detail on, on how we see that world and how we are starting to communicate the value of what we are doing and the pipeline that is building up underneath us right now. David, I'm sure you have a lot of things to add. Just one example, day in the life of the CFO that may, may answer your question. I think we were at the center of this EV rev revolution. I'll just tell this week of what I did. First part of my week, I was talking with an OEM of how we can make their vehicle better with Nuvi's technology. The following day, I was in Detroit talking to a utility provider, talking about how we can make the utilities more relevant and how they can connect with this EV revolution. And then later this week, I was talking to a partner on the charger side to say, how can we deploy our technology more effectively with yours? They see us, again, as I said, as a complement to what they're doing. We make this transition happen faster. We make it easier. We make it economical. And we're talking to all of those people. And as you said, the MasterCard Visa is a very good analogy. We're at the center point and people are not afraid to talk to us. The utilities want to talk to us. The OEMs want to talk to us. And the charger station manufacturers want to talk to us. So that's just what we do. And that's not trumped up. That's just, again, the day in the life of a CFO just last week. And that's why we see tremendous upside in where we're headed. I like the way you position yourself to be a neutral party, almost like someone who doesn't compete, but collaborates. This opens up a lot of doors, I would imagine, not just with the OEMs, but with utilities, as well as the charging partners as well. So the next question that I'm going to ask is kind of related to the previous part where we spoke previously about uh, why did Nuvi focus on the software side of things and not the hardware side of things. So we see that you have forged a joint venture with Stonepick called Levo. Why is this partnership significant for Nuvi? And maybe for some context for the listeners, Nuvi had a joint venture with Stonepick and Stonepick offered funds to basically fund the cost to purchase electric school buses and they're going to offer a transportation as a service, meaning they're going to lease out the electric school buses and earn a certain revenue. And Nuvi will be the one supporting this fleet of buses under Levo for V2G services. I'm just going to ask, you know, why do you think this is significant? And maybe if I describe anything wrongly in the previous uh, extract, uh, let me know and so that the viewers can actually have a better view on what this partnership is all about. I talked about, you know, the first step, making the vehicle storage on wheel. Second step, having a platform that allows to aggregate all those vehicles. There's a third step to that. Now you are generating some revenue. 
The acquisition cost of an EV is, is high. There's a need for a charging station. There's a need for potential grid upgrades, especially when you look at it from a fleet perspective. Right? All that is a significant upfront cost, right? That not everybody can afford. But if you are able to amortize that cost over a long period of time, now this is a little bit easier. Now, when you combine that with a V2G that allows to reduce the total cost of ownership by 25 to 40%, now you have a very attractive total cost of ownership of that vehicle, especially when you amortize it over such a long period of time. So the idea of, of the financing has always been you know, floating around. And we were talking with multiple private equities and, and we engaged you know, very, very deeply with Stone Peak, which is a very significant player in that space. You know, they have about $39 billion in the management at this point. And really fulfilling this vision of one, providing the financing in order to support the transition from internal combustion engine to electric vehicles. And that's the number one goal of LIBO. But the number two goal of LIBO also is really to put a whole process to make this, this transition from, you know, you're a fleet manager today and you manage a fleet of internal combustion engine vehicle and you decide to go to electric, you're not just swapping one vehicle for the other. There's a whole set of things that need to, to go with it, right? What charger are you selecting? How do you deal with your utility tariffs? And what we add on top of that is like this asset now, each time you park it, actually is still going to be generating some value. And you're going to be able to take advantage of that value because you're going to be paying for a lot of things that, that otherwise you would have to pay yourself. That's really the foundation of, of the idea of the partnership with Stone Peak and for Levo to provide a full packaged transportation as a service for the end users there are, there are some big trends behind that right we've heard for many years that companies have been trying to push their fleets of their balance sheet levo can allow to do that allow them to do that and when the v2g revenue is added to that you know basically we are generating some revenue with a vehicle not just by providing the transportation as a service but also when the vehicle is parked uh, and that's really helping moving those vehicles off the balance sheet of those big those big companies um, and we think that at the consumer level there will be also you know, a lot of interest it's going to come afterwards you know, our focus today is fixed and, and I would say, Jonathan, just another way that we partner, which is as we go talk to a customer, we're going with the manufacturer of the EV to help them acquire it. We can acquire the bus, we can provide the charger, provide the financing. It's a turnkey package back to this MasterCard Visa. We are at the center of it. We have a seat at the table every time we're talking about a customer wanting to electrify their fleet. And so we want to make this an easy, fantastic customer experience. And we did find one of the obstacles, not for every customer, but many, is the cost of capital. So we said, we're going to provide a solution for that too. And then EVs are different than combustion engines of how you maintain them. The ownership life cycle is different. So we said, if we provide transportation as a service, we can also manage that for you. So to make it very easy, and our ultimate objective is to transform internal combustion vehicles to electric. They're better vehicles, they're more cost-effective, and this is one way to do that. Thank you. Now, while you are talking about this, I just have kind of like a few questions I want to dig in. Maybe David, you could add some color on this. Uh, what are some uh, potential financial uh, benefits you could see in the next maybe five to 10 years from the partnership coming from Stone Peak? So uh, we could kind of understand what is kind of like the potential growth for Novi. Well, one that comes immediate is as you have customers that adopt transportation as a service, as a method, and find the ease of it, you create a recurring relationship. You think about school buses or transportation fleets, they'll replace a percentage of their vehicles every year. They convert it to Levo. What will they likely do the next time? 
they convert more vehicles. This becomes an annuity for us, a very predictable revenue stream for our investors with a significant growth curve. And it's not just the school bus market that will adopt this. There are fleets both in the US, outside of the US and Asia and Europe. So we see this as a fantastic model. And I think, I know, I'm certain once customers get used to our service level and the ease of which they can convert, we're not gonna lose that customer. And everybody talks about repeat rate. What is the sign-up rate for your customers after they do the first sale? And transportation of a service is a fantastic way to make sure we keep that customer for a long time. And, and just actually to add to that is the V2G, right? From my perspective, from the end customer perspective is not about the grid service. It's about the customer experience. It's about making sure the vehicle are ready for the driver when the driver needs the vehicle. That's the primary purpose of the vehicle. It's about, you no, know, if, if something happens with the charging station, we are monitoring those charging stations on a second by second basis. So we're going to be the first one knowing about it. We can remotely try to start to restart them or send somebody to fix them if there's a, a deeper issue. And finally, you provide all of this at the lowest cost possible. To me, that's that's the V2G perspective from the user. And, and on our website, we have actually quite a few testimonials from early fleet managers in, in Denmark that we've been working with for many years now. And that's exactly the type of feedback you would, you would see there. Yeah, Jonathan, I think we would have been very short-sighted had we not had a financing alternative. If you think of GM financing is often more profitable than GM, BMW financing, but it complements what they do. They produce the vehicle and then they have a way for the consumer to finance it. We do the same thing. So it's a great beginning, this $750 million that we have committed capital, but I see a lot bigger demand than that over time because of this relationship we have with Levo and Stone Peak. Could we help the listeners to have a ballpark in a way? What is kind of like the neighborhood in terms of a number of school buses that could come about from the injection of 750 million from Stone Peak? First of all, a little bit uh, about data about the market. In the US, it's about 500,000 school buses on the road, right? 24 million students start taking the bus every day. It's the largest transportation you know, every day that happens in the US. So 500,000 in the US, 600,000 across North America. So you know, average age, I think, is about you know, 12 to 15 years, so an aging fleet. And so replacement rate of about 30 to 40,000 a year, something like that. But the way we've been building this is looking at multiple deployments, which is you know, the, the, the target for spending the $750 million. And so that $750 million takes us to about 3,500 school buses uh, that will be deployed. And that corresponds to about $150 million per year of combination of the transportation as a service fee and the grid service fee. And to add to that, Jonathan, if from a percentage perspective, that's about half, per, half a percent of the market. So the question, your investors and all of us, how many people will electrify, what percent that will be? It's gonna be a lot more than half a percent over time. And so that $750 million is a small piece of what will be capital that will be needed to electrify and more part of that. So we're pretty excited. I can't tell you how long it will take to put to use that $750 million, but I think the future is much bigger than that. Now, can I just understand from a business level, who is going to operate Levo? Because I think that's one question that is always in investors' head. So we'll Stone Peak be appointing their own operators and you will work closely with the operators of Levo or both Gregory, you and David, both of you will actually have some uh, say in, in the meetings and how uh, these buses will be built and, you know, finding partners to actually take the buses. 
it's structured as, as a company with a board. And as you might remember, we own 51% and Stonepeak owns 49%. So we have the majority of the board. Now, Stonepeak is putting money as preferred. And therefore, they also have some you know, special rights associated with that preferred, which is balancing the, the power, basically about 50-50. But in terms of you know, working together, you know, we've been now working together for, since February. And so we are working very closely. We are in the process of setting that the team that will be taking this over. But the board also, which will regroup people from, from Nuvi and people from Stonepeak, is going to be very involved, at least initially, to make sure that the operations are taking off well. The idea also, you know, why did Stonepeak do that with us? Is because they know that Nuvi is the leader on the V2G piece. They know that we have a lot of experience, a lot of expertise on the field. And really, Nivo is an extension of what Nuvi does. From a Nuvi perspective, it's a way of controlling your destiny. And then from Nivo's perspective, this is the mothership in terms of the technology, where the technology is residing. And so we, we have a very close collaboration in how we are addressing the market today and setting up the team really as a joint work, where we are all here to make the best out of this. And, and we are all very focused on that. And I think the way we structured it is also very important because the way we are getting those 51% is by allowing Stone Peak to have some warrants and some options. Therefore, if Nuvi has some significant upside in terms of, of the value of our share, uh, that's how they are also extracting some profit out of that. So the answer, Jonathan, is yes, we spend a lot of time and it's going to be a long, it's a long relationship between us and Levo and it cross-pollinates continuously. Thanks for the answer. Now, I want to ask, having Stonepeak as a strong partner to aid in Nubi's growth, they've committed $750 million. I think that's a huge amount of capital that really sets a very strong pipeline for Nuvi. And of course, I see that they actually can exercise up to $250 million worth of shares in the future at $50. Mm-hmm. Do you foresee yourself needing to raise more money in the short run? Because I think that's almost a billion dollars committed into Nuvi. I can answer that. In the short run, no. We just went public. We raised north of $60 million. And given we're more of a technology business, most of our investment is in people. We don't have to build factories or plants of lots of working capital from that perspective. So we're sufficiently capitalized to make sure that we run our business and expand. That being said, we'll be opportunistic as we start to grow and we see opportunities to raise more capital, if it makes sense. Of course we would. Think about most of the investment capital you described it comes on Levo because that is buying hardware, that's buying buses, that's buying chargers. That's not what Nuvi does. Nuvi has their V2G technology and it's people and engineers that deploy that. Thanks. Now, next one, uh, let's move a bit into your pattern because I think this is what is uh, something that you guys are really proud of because you are the first mover. Uh, In fact, uh, the professor started this entire research since 2009. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 2009. So uh, that has been uh, a long, long time. So I understand that you have a V2G pattern. And can I ask for the sake of the listeners, because I think some of these patterns can uh, be very technical to read. uh, Could you explain briefly what does this pattern cover? And can a third party do V2G without infringing the rights in your patent? <laughs> I would never answer the, the second question with a direct answer. But no, just first on, on how this IP is structured. There are multiple patents. Some of them focused on the EV, some of them focused on the charging station, some of them focused on the aggregation platform. Now, the way I like describing it is you have two aspects of V2G. You have the aspects of the infrastructure, which is, uh, on the one hand, the ability of charging and discharging the vehicle either through having an onboard bidirectional charger inside the vehicle 
or having a charging station that has bidirectional capabilities and connects with DC to the, to the vehicle. Uh, that's one piece of the infrastructure. The other piece of the infrastructure is the ability of, of moving data around, data about the vehicle, about the charging station, how they exchange data, and then bring all that data to a cloud platform, right? So that's that's the infrastructure piece. A lot of people today, when they talk about V2G, they're like, hey, look, I do V2G, and they push a button and it's discharging. So that, that's, that's step one. Really, step two is the aggregation platform is how do you manage that infrastructure in terms of interfacing to the grid, responding the needs to the grid, you're making commitments, you need to deliver on that. But obviously the primary purpose, as I said earlier, is to make sure the vehicle is ready for the driver. So the scheduling of the driver, the minimum set of charge that the driver might want. And then the third piece, which is not to be neglected, is the battery. Because you want to do those two first things while you're also protecting the battery that's inside the vehicle. And all those concepts actually are all very well protected in the pattern that we have. I can't say somebody, somebody can find another ways to do this. But when our initial investors, EDF Renewable and Toyota Tsusho, which is a trading company part of the Toyota Group, invested in Nuvi, they, they did quite a bit of analysis on, our, analysis on our IP. And their conclusion was it, it's it's very strong on the V2G piece. I will leave it there at this point, but uh, we were very proud of the work that Willett Kempton did, started in 1996, converged on patents that were not just thoughts, but were working out, that were built out of a, a working product and with somebody that really thought through all the details about how to get this done. And so we feel very, very strong about it. I, I think, Jonathan, part of the testament is that as we went through a long process with Stone Peak, people, when they commit three quarters of a billion dollars and say, what's unique about Nuvi? And we said, it's our V2G and our secret sauce, which is our IP. Believe me, they looked at it in a lot of detail and came back and concluded, we want to help commit $750 million. So it's gone through a lot of tests and we're very confident. We're very well protected and other people may try to copy us. And should they do that and they infringe upon our patents, then we would do something about it. And by the way, we went through a very, very serious due diligence. It's not just the IP, but it's all the aspect of what we are doing that has been reviewed very, very closely. And we feel very comfortable about sharing that with them. The conclusion is very supportive of what we are doing here. Well, thanks. I think that uh, gives a lot of insight as to the strength of the IP and basically the due diligence and why your partners like Stonepeak eventually invested uh, money into you. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the batteries because you spoke, one of the patterns uh, talks about the batteries. And I think there's a misconception that V2G may damage the batteries of electric vehicles because I think most consumers would think if you keep charging and discharging, you're going to spoil your battery. But it seems like on Nuvi's website, you actually debunk this notion. So could you shed more light on this? Discharging your kilowatt hour is not the same if you do that at 60 or 70% instead of charge compared to if you do that at 5% instead of charge. And if you do that at 5% instead of charge in a hot temperature environment, you can create some serious damage by just doing it once. So the first thing is, so there's a, a chart that it's a 3D chart that we have actually in the white paper, which shows the depth of discharge versus temperature and versus damage caused to the battery. So the deeper the depth of discharge, the more damage you might connect, create to the battery. And the higher the temperature, the more damage you might create to the battery. But outside of that, there is an area where the battery is very, very resilient. And that very resilient area of the battery, this is where we are making sure we are staying 
as often as possible so that discharging those kilowatt hours uh, has no impact on the battery layer. By the way, you know, the other thing is time is actually the number one impact usually on the battery life. When you put the battery together, now the clock is starting, you have a limited amount of time. And for a battery to do nothing for a long period of time is actually not good for it. If you take a school bus, they are parked three months in a row every summer. The ability of keeping on charging, discharging in the right zone that I described earlier actually can really actually enhance the battery life in this case, because if you let the battery do nothing, there's deposition on the anode and the cathode. And this is what is reducing the overall capacity uh, over time of that battery. We did also some analysis with Honda, with Nissan. Number one factor is time. Number two is driving. You remember I talked about this 10 kilowatt on 24, 25 kilowatt hour batteries. When you drive, you know, even in Nissan Leaf, you might push it all the way to 70 kilowatts. So it's a lot more demanding to drive the vehicle than, than what we are doing. Fast charging is also very, very demanding. You're talking about much higher power than what we are using it at. And you know, the, at exactly same usage, V2G would be you know, this little piece at the end that maybe has a little bit of impact if it's not managed. Our platform is managing the V2G piece. And again, it's it's not just a platform, it's also part of the IP, how all this has been considered. And yeah, as you said, we have a great white paper about the battery. I think we bring a lot of perspective on it. We are working with different partners. You know, we announced our partnership with Romeo Power, for example. There's a reason why those partners are also coming and working with us, right? And so now you see also the ability of our, of our technology to reach all the way to financing the vehicle on the one hand, and all the way to integrating ourselves with the battery manufacturers on the other hand. I mean, nobody else in this ecosystem does it today. And if you think about it, back to what we talked about earlier, Jonathan, the vehicle's parked 96% of the time. So while it's parked and it's not in use, what is the ideal rate which you should charge it? What speed to make it available for use when the customer wants to drive it? And, and should and what rate should you discharge it? And that's what our system does beautifully while the vehicle is there parked. And the tools get smarter, we integrate with the manufacturers of the batteries. So when you think about how it can damage the battery, it's really us having oversight of the battery the entire time while it's plugged into the charger. By doing that, we're protecting the battery. Thanks for sharing. So from what you have said, is it accurate to say that V2G, in fact, improves the performance of a consumer's uh, car battery as compared to without V2G and it's just sitting out in the cold, for example, and it's not doing anything? You know, I would be careful in doing that in a very generic way, but I'm comfortable saying that in some cases, V2G can improve the battery life. Case in point here is school buses that again are parked three months in a row every summer. I'm trying to be careful because there are many, many cases that could be associated with it. It's, so it would not always be true but there are definitely cases where we do that. But I would add, Jonathan, keep in mind our business model, which is we have a reason to help be a partner with the customer through the life of their vehicle, because we also have an economic incentive. We're watching that battery from the day you take delivery till the end of life, in addition to providing the charging functions. So we are there to look over the performance of the battery, that the charger is working properly, that is charging and discharging the vehicle. Nobody else does that. We do that because we have our financial incentive. So it's a beautiful relationship that works. And then we can provide that also feedback 24 seven minute by minute to the OEM to develop a better vehicle. I'm like, Gregory, I'd be very careful. But when you think about our relationship with the customer and that they wanna use the vehicle and have it last a long time, when we talk to customers, they say that really makes good sense to me 
that Nuvi would be partnering with us for the entire life cycle of the vehicle. Well, that makes a lot of sense because if V2G was not good for the batteries, it's kind of like Nuvi shooting ourselves uh, in the foot <laughs> because uh, the very batteries that is going to bring us revenues in the short term has to survive in the long term. Otherwise, your customers are going to churn. Yep. So uh, next, let me move on to the licensing part. So we talked about the patents. Now let's talk about the license because I think on the uh, investor presentation slides, it seems like Nuvi is the only one that has the license to send power back to the grid. And to a layman in investor, this may seem like a simple job, just putting power back, but can you explain the complexities behind sending power back to the grid? Because I understand from an engineering point of view, it's not so simple. And if you do something wrong, you could pretty much trip the entire power grid, which is going to be disastrous. I just want to correct that. We are not the only one having the license to do that, but what we are different from anybody else is we are qualified by multiple system operators around the world in order to provide search services. And now there are also two layers to that. One is the physical interconnection, which is you put a charging station, you're going to be feeding energy back to the grid. And so you need to have some right certification associated with it. It's not new, right? You have the same certification associated with inverters when you have solar on your rooftop. Now, the benefits is that solar on rooftop is just powering energy whenever the sun is shining. We control better and so we can synchronize now. So we have a lot of value we bring on top of it. But this, this interconnection process is number one. This is a changing environment. There is something called Rule 21 in California, which requires you know, some very specific UL certification. Uh, one of them is called UL 1741 SA. I don't want to be too technical, but that's some very specific things that the charging station needs to be able to do. That's the first layer. Now, the second layer is you don't want to just backfeed at any time. You want to backfeed in ways where this is valuable for the grid. This corresponds to an actual service where you get compensated for that. And so through that, it's really about this synchronization between the grid and the way we are managing the vehicles and delivering on our commitments, right? As you said, right? I mean, if we don't deliver on our commitment, maybe things could go wrong. And so if you commit, you know, a megawatt tomorrow from 7 to 8 a.m., we need to have that megawatt available to be dispatched uh, if it's called on. And that's where the platform that becomes very important. You need to account for vehicles. You now, I describe it as unreliable resources, right? And so another way to describe what we are doing at Nuvi is we are taking this unreliable resources and we are converting into a reliable dispatchable and monetizable asset and i think these three factors are capturing what you are describing here it's about feeding back to the grid but it's about feeding back to the grid in a very synchronized way and that's really the difficulty there accounting for the fact that at some point the driver says, oh actually i'm going to unplug the car because maybe i just won't <laughs> right or we have an app uh, where we have a, something called uh, emergency charge. So if you have an unplanned trip, you might be able to say, hey, I want you to charge my car as fast as you can right now. I've got an unplanned trip and I really don't want to lose my time. So you can see here at the bottom here, there is uh, something called emergency charge. And you see the, the car is blue right now. That car is actually doing V2G right now in Denmark. I want to push this emergency charge maybe just as a, a little demo here. So you're going to see that the car now become red, right? It's going in full charge. You know, I said, hey, stop doing the great services, just charge me. Um, now I, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to say, actually, uh, please go back in V2G. I, I cancel my trip. And you're going to see here that the vehicle is becoming blue again because wow. it's back to V2G. So this is all real-time connected to an app that any operator can use. It's just connected to a vehicle in Denmark right now. That's the vehicle in Denmark. From San Diego, I was controlling a vehicle in Denmark. 
Oh, thanks for sharing the insights. Now, I think you spoke a lot about platform and how a platform, correct me if I'm wrong, legitimize the source of the electricity, right? What was the term that you were using to convert it unreliable, right? To a reliable yeah, Unreliable to reliable, dispatchable, monetizable assets. Great. And only a platform can do that. So I just want to basically help people to understand the market more because I believe that there are actually people who can do V2G, but they do not have a platform. So does that mean that, for example, people meaning, let's say if I'm a personal consumer and I have a Tesla car parked in my garage and I, I do a simple V2G, but I do not have a platform. So what is the difference between uh, what these individuals are doing and what Novi is doing? Is it really... Uh, mainly the unreliable source of, uh, I mean, making unreliable sources of electricity to become reliable. It will be those three things, right? It's like, how do you synchronize whatever your vehicle is performing as a service with the needs from the grid? Either it's maybe at the level of your house or at the level of the substation where your house is connected to or at the level of the whole system, you know, through the, the transmission system operator. So it's really this ability of synchronizing. As I say all the time, I would never make those choices myself. I leave the platform to those choices because it's too complex for me to decide. You need to look at different trade-offs that each time you are looking at how to respond to a signal. And so that's where the platform makes a very big difference. And again, that platform needs to have this virtual power plant capability in order to be qualified by the system operators in order to provide those services. Okay, thank you. Now, I think this is something you probably spoke about. You spoke about different electricity market because I think from a consumer point of view, right, for someone who doesn't understand the electricity market, they may just think that Nuvi is making off the arbitrage, right? Basically, when electricity spikes up, we sell. When electricity uh, comes down, the cost, uh, we actually uh, buy it. So in a sense, we are short selling <laughs> the electricity market. Uh, in a very predictable manner because at night everyone switches the lights on, demand goes up uh, straight away. However, I understand you spoke about the wholesale market as well. So can you help us understand a bit more by elaborating how does uh, Nuvi tap into these different markets which you have been speaking a lot about uh, in the previous 30 minutes? First of all, the choice of the type of service that you do depends on the geography you're in. As you said, you as a consumer in Singapore right now, there is no arbitrage to make on the retail price, right? So this would be, okay, there's no value. In, in France, for example, the value there is very small as well. In the UK, there's a bigger spread between the time of use pricing. And so now you can play on that. Now you need to set up the right tariff. So you work with a retailer. And you can set up a right tariff that would incent people to discharge their vehicle at certain time during the day. That's one level. That's just, you know, managing that at the retail level. And as you said, it's very, it's somewhat mechanic because you have in advance what, what is the price. No, the price is not volatile. Now we also see some real-time pricing on time of use. This is something that is getting to be experimented as well. So we could see in the very near future where you know you live in a neighborhood where at this point there's a lot of generation because everybody's got rooftop solar maybe as your retail price goes at very low close to zero on the other hand if you're in a neighborhood where everybody is turning on the ac it's very hot now the price could be picking up and so you might see some of that but that's at the retail level and it includes other fees the transmission fee the distribution fees the taxes now the ability of Nuvi is to not just play at that level but to play also for example at the iso level the system operator level this is where the wholesale markets manage this is where the ancillary services are being managed as well this is where the different layers of security in terms of always making sure there is 
generation that capacity on the grid are being defined as well. And you can provide that capacity at that level. That's where the virtual power plant capability is becoming very, very important. Now we see that definition of markets is moving down at the distribution level as well, because now we, we can't be in a race of putting more and more cable there. Let's be smarter about how we are doing that. And so utilities, which were maybe more like network operators, are becoming more system operators as well, distribution system operators, where they try to manage that, bring resources, either initially resources that they were owning on the one hand, but now also more and more bringing other resources that are able to help their system. And some of them is being settled at their level. Some of them might still be level, settled at the ISO level. But, you know, all the demand response programs are usually managed at the utility level. And there's a market called DRAM here in California. There is also resource adequacy. So there are many layers of markets that are usually incorporated in each and every of those markets and geographies. Thank you. I think that is much clearer. Now, I just want to tap onto your expertise in the industry, because from what I understand, if V2G has to succeed, we need to start laying down more grids that are bi-directional. So from your point of view, I would imagine building, for example, if a town doesn't have a bi-directional grid, it is a grid that is built many decades ago. Is there an incentive for utility players to dig up the soil and lay down the entire grid to make it bi-directional? Is it a huge issue for the V2 trend to take off? So usually actually the grid is naturally bi-directional. And you see that because people are putting rooftop solar. So it's not as if we are breaking something that's totally different than what has been done before. Rooftop solar has already covered that. When we flow energy back to the grid, we're going through the same process. Now, there might be some cases where a certain piece of hardware might not be bi-directional, but this is actually really rare. And so that's actually not a hurdle to the adoption of E2G. Okay, thank you. Now, let's move over to the growth drivers part, which I think is what <laughs> most investors are really interested. Could you share with us, other than school buses, what are some adjacent vehicle types you're looking at for V2G? Yeah, so here in the US, we're very focused on medium heavy duty and refuse trucks is a very interesting category as well that is really picking up. But you have also delivery vans, box trucks, shuttles, university shuttles, campus shuttles, airport shuttles. You also have transit buses that are interesting. Municipal vehicles are also very, very interesting. Like park vehicles. If you go in a park, very often you see an, an, it's like a Chevrolet or a Ford pickup truck. And they are parked most of the time. They are you know, driving very few miles every day. So and they are maybe parked at that same spots all the time. So you could put some infrastructure there that would be able to not just recharge them, but also to provide some type of grid service. And so we see across the board on the fleet side, we see strong interest. Now, not everything has the same economics as the school buses. They are parked 97% of the time or something like that. But the economics are still very attractive. And the ability of reducing the total cost of ownership is there. You can kind of think of Jonathan of the transportation that's available today. What type of vehicles could electrify? There's really very few that can't. There's another example of, of special purpose vehicles at airports. There's lots of different vehicles that we don't think of. They will electrify, and some of them already are electric. That, that we're talking to to add V2G as a benefit to what they're doing. 
I think when you spoke about trucks, it is an exciting area because their battery capacity is much bigger and we can expect higher revenues coming from them from the arbitrage on the cost of energy. However, I think to most investors who are not in the industry, they may think that, you know, truck drivers work long hours and have volatile schedules, right? Especially logistics truck drivers. So can they still make meaningful revenues, as you say, from V2G if they're not going to be plugged into the grid most of the time? So, I mean, now you're talking about the long haul and the long haul, that's a different question. Now, what we were talking about here were really trucks that are, you know, usually maybe driving maybe a maximum of 100 miles per day or something, maybe 150 miles per day. That's what we've been talking about. Those long haul trucks, I think there is some recharging capabilities along the way are very important on freeways, but also when they get back at their main camp, they might stay parked a few days there. So maybe not all the trucks are doing V2G at the same time, but the ability of doing V2G from those trucks, which doesn't require more capital to be you know, added the, the cost to the vehicle, the cost is, is very, very small. So when those trucks are parked back at the camp, then it makes sense to do V2G from there. There's a pretty large port in California in the city of Long Beach, and I go by it often. And if you look at the number of trucks large long-haul trucks that are parked. They may be used a lot, but there's always hundreds and hundreds of them parked at one time. And so parking lots are another great source for V2G. There's predictability, they're parked and they're plugged in maybe only for a few hours, but then another one comes in its spot. And so from that parking spot perspective, there's something always parked there 100% of the time where we could use V2G services to lower the cost of ownership. Can you speak about the statistics? Can basically Nuvi platform uh, use statistics to help with clients who have volatile schedules? Let me just repeat. Can yes. Nuvi platform handle statistics to predict basically when trucks are coming in or when trucks are coming out for clients with volatile schedules? Yes, absolutely. This is what I meant by you know, taking this unreliable resource and making it as a reliable. That's the first step. That's the forecasting. What is the probability at any time during the day that that vehicle might be plugged? And some of them are going to be very regular from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. Never there, but from 4 p.m. to 8 a.m. always there. And some others are going to be a lot more random, but they actually run them in certain windows. Maybe sometimes it comes at two, sometimes it comes at five. That's the window. Maybe it leaves at seven or leave at 10. So you you have some windows where you have some uncertainty and then some windows that are going to be highly certain about what's going to happen. And so that's really at the heart. And that's how we can help also making sure the vehicles are ready for the drivers by spending time on that forecasting piece. Thank you. That is useful. Now let's move over to some other growth questions. So what kind of growth optionalities does Nuvi have other than the V2G grid services in the future? I think, first of all, you know, we'd love to get to the point where the V2G is a growth issue. We'd love to get there. But we talked about this world of applications that's going to come out of it, right? That this intersection between transportation and energy. And I think there is an humongous growth behind that. I mean, again, look at your phone and, and the stuff you're able to do today compared to, you know, 20 years ago. And so we see the amount of applications that are going to be created around that to be very, very large and very valuable. 
it's a little bit hard to predict. And by the way, the timing, we will always get it wrong, but that's okay. The growth and the volume is going to be there, but, but just the V2G on itself is a humongous value. You know, the, the total energy market is a you know, $3.2 trillion market. We think that the market we can address is about $300 billion. So I think we've got plenty of room to grow and become a, a significant player here. One, one thing to think about, Jonathan, which is unique about Nuvi, and it's unlike any other company, and that's one of the reasons I joined, is we, although a small company today, we have a footprint, as we talked about, in North America. We're also in Denmark. We're in France. We're in the UK. We have relationships in Japan. So we're not just a domestic-based business. We have footprints and salespeople all over the world, and there's growth happening in all of those places. And there's a long runway for us. So as Gregory said, it would be a good problem to have that we've saturated the services we're offering today. And as you said, even in your case, you talk about having a Tesla at home and today there's a retail market. Maybe I can't access it. That's not true. That will change. As you think about rooftop solar, you think about what applications for your battery that you could avail yourself of and you start to ideate. And that's what our engineers do. There's lots of ideas on the table, but we're super focused on what we're doing right now and deliver upon that. And it's a very big market. I think Asia is a huge growing market. I mean, speaking about the addressable market and I see most of your footprints mainly in uh, Europe and in the US. So do you have plans to come down to Asia? Because I think you have a rising middle class. You have really big OEMs like BYD. So what are some plans or strategic plans that you have for Asia? Asia is the gravity center in terms of population on Earth. So definitely, as I said, we have a Toyota Tsusho, which is part of the Toyota Group, is an investor. And we've actually been doing multiple projects with them in Japan over the last nearly four years now. And so we, we are working really on shaping up the regulatory environment. You know, now, this, the overall you know, Southeast Asia that you're pointing out, you know, it's 800 million people. It's very large, very interesting place from multiple perspectives. One is, as you said, there's a middle class group Growing. And so, for example, we've done some projects with Morocco in the Philippines. We also have a project in Singapore with EDF. So we have, we have different projects there. The other thing is many islands in Southeast Asia. There are many, many, many islands. I think 50% of them are not powered today. So the ability of combining electrification of transportation with uh, you know, an electric system that you can deploy on those islands is going to be very, very valuable as well. And what excited me about Nuvi, this is the ability of having a platform that can really provide services around the world, not just in the developed world, but also, for example, we have a deployment in, in Africa, in Namibia, where we've been working with the United Nations Development Program, deploying some Nissan Leaf. It has the ability of solving many great issues, whatever is that issue. The important thing is that flexibility in the platform. So Southeast Asia, top of our priority as the next step uh, when you look about the next extension in the world. And as you said, many car OEM from China probably will be selling cars in Southeast Asia. And so we you know we have some relationships that we are building today with some of those OEMs and we'll be ready. When the wave comes, we'll be ready. And, and, and Jonathan, to add to that, as you think about Asia, but also North America and Europe, government leadership are constantly looking at ways to lower the negative impact of combustion engines, the negative impact of carbon in our environment. And so all of us have an intent to accelerate electric vehicles. And one of the problems is they are more expensive in many cases, the cost is coming down, but we start to change that curve where the vehicle's less expensive. And especially in economies that don't have as much wealth, 
How do we get those people to be able to drive an electric vehicle that's clean for the environment? Not everybody can afford a Tesla. And so we see our solution as part of accelerating that need and what government and business are trying to do. So when you say, well, you know, we're here to, of course, make a profit for investors. But at the same time, I think we're actually providing a positive impact to allow the developing world to have the same things that the developed world, which is less pollution, electric vehicles, which are more fun to drive. They're more reliable and, and less polluting. Thank you. Now on total addressable market again, just in the US, what is kind of like a realistic goal you think you can hit in the next five to 10 years in terms of how much market share you think uh, Nuvi is looking at in the school bus area? The market share, it depends on what piece you are looking at. In terms of the grid services, I would definitely hope that we have a majority of that um, because of our IP position as well, for example. So that, that's one piece. Now, you know, the, the Levo business might, you know, doesn't have to be. We talked about you know, a billion dollars of capital is, is less than a person that you can address with that. So uh, of all the school buses right only so i mean there's room there's plenty of room for multiple players to come in that space now again on the pure grid services as newbie we should definitely be a significant player with a good chunk of the market share jonathan the way i would think about it is read about us and who we're integrating with so you think about the school bus market and who is Nuvi spending deep time to integrate with not only with the OEM but then the battery supplier and as we talked about earlier our initiative is to to partner with all of them so the more we integrate not all of them may may not be winners in the marketplace we're not just placing one bet you know we're integrating with all of them and I do know for certainty there will be more electric buses on the road and more electric vehicles two three four years from now and Nuvi spending a lot of time partnering with all of them um, and that's where we start to grab a big part of the market share. I think I spoke uh, with you prior to the podcast, and it seems like uh, both uh, David and Gregory here, uh, both of you actually like long-term investors. So maybe I just want to say something, and both of you let me know if this is something that's fair. So from how I see it, it seems like we have the Biden plans coming on. We have the subsidies coming. Uh, you actually have a very strong pipeline from Stonepick, right? You also have a very strong partners, uh, which are Bluebird and Lion Electric, and both have announced that they are going to grow pretty quickly because of this entire EV trend. And I also understand uh, from what you spoke earlier that revenues may be lumpy in the short run. So I think for someone who really wants to benefit from Nuvi, they can't be anxious and hope for revenues to shoot up in the next one or two years. Because honestly, I don't think any CEO knows what's going to happen in the next five years. But I think there is a very strong certainty of the end game playing out. End game meaning more electric school buses coming out, more potentially uh, trucks electrified. And this is where Nuvi can actually take advantage of this trend that I personally think that is not something hard to imagine. I think it is in fact happening in front of our eyes. So is this the right way to think about it, you know, uh, from the management point of view? Like in the short run, probably it's very hard to even uh, give the revenue guidelines down to the uh, sense, but uh, in the long run, uh, both of you are confident that the end game will happen and Nuvi will stand in a very uh, good position. Absolutely. No, I think I think you're defining it very well here, which is setting exactly where we're going to be at the end of the year. Not very easy. Now, how does our you know, backlog looks like? That now starts to be something that we can start to be able to share. And, and uh, those are the directions that we are taking right now. Again, very careful in the way we are communicating about it because we don't want to set the wrong expectations. We want to be very clear on, on where we are going. 
now I know I'm extremely bullish on what we are doing and I see tremendous growth. How it comes out at the end of the day when you no know, revenue recognition and all that. So this is why you have David on board with me. <laughs> yeah, I think you said it well, John. It's very difficult to predict the timing. I mean, even if you look in the short term lead times on on parts and vehicles, COVID's added to that. Actually, the government subsidies are very helpful, but they can actually slow things down in the long run because then you're dealing with the timing of government. But all of this interest and all of these OEMs bringing out new vehicles, when will more of them be on the road? It's hard to tell, but they are coming. And as I've said, we're spending a lot of time partnering with them. And we're not asking the question, when will you give us a sale? It's not what we talk about. It's just, how do we partner with you to make your vehicle more valuable for your customer? And then when we talk to the end customer, how do we make your experience better? And I could tell you nine times out of eight, 10, they say, why would I not add Nuvi's technology to my EV solution? It's not really a sale. It's not a hard sale. They get it. But you're right. I can't tell you how many new vehicles will actually be on the road where we then install the charger and apply the V2G. That's the difficult part. But we do monitor our pipeline and the level of interest and the interest is stronger than it was six months ago, even though we've gone through this really unique time in our economy where we're a lot of uncertainty. And actually there's, if you go to try to rent a car today, there's fewer of them available because production hasn't been very good because of supply chain that might make you feel more negative, but actually we're more bullish because of what we see coming. There's an avalanche, avalanche of, of products but it's hard to predict when they'll be on the road. Do you help us understand on the ground when you have conversations with your partners, your OEM partners, uh, what are their clients saying? Are they asking how much are the school buses or, or any electric vehicles? Or are they asking when can they get these uh, vehicles? So what is kind of like the urgency on the ground? I think another way to look at it is if you look at production sites, parking lots, an electric school bus would not spend a lot of time at a parking lot. It's probably highly demanded somewhere else. The lead time on those are longer than traditional vehicles. And that's because everybody's trying to ramp up production, facing all the you know, cheap shortage and, and all those things. I think this is a natural transition that you see when a production line comes together, right? Uh, at the beginning, it's always harder, and then it takes off. Yeah, and I think customers realize from fleets, in a school bus as an example, but it can across many fleets, the cost is higher and it's new to people. So if you're a fleet manager, there's a lot of uncertainty. In anything, there's the early adopters that are smaller percentages, Gregory. They can get it as fast as they can get it. They don't mind that it's more expensive and they want to take a risk. It's just when, like when the iPhone came out. Very few people had it. It was expensive. And then the followers come on. We're seeing the same thing here, which is the cost is more expensive today. There's fewer availability. And some people are in a wait and see mode. But we do know the cost curve is going to quickly come down. And so as more of those vehicles are on the road and the cost curve comes down, that actually is good for us. That declining price curve makes the need for more vehicles on the road and then making our solution more valuable. So it's a uh, small piece of the market today, electric vehicles in the US as well as across the world, but growing at an exponential rate. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. We are down to our last question. Thank you for being so generous with your time. And lastly, I always like to end the podcast with a cheeky question, a question that is hard for our hosts. And I hope we don't sweat, right? <laughs> so what do you think about Elon Musk's opinion that V2G is not viable? In fact, he thinks that from a resource point of view, it doesn't make sense. And vehicles should not be stationary and they should not be plugged into the grid. In fact, I think 
Tesla feels that their entire holistic solution of having the power wall, their solar roof is going to be much superior because that way you don't have to rely on the vehicle to discharge. You can rely on your solar walls. You can rely on your solar roof. So what is your opinion on that? Because out there, investors think that this is a potential threat to Nuvi's long-term plans. So first, let me say that I think we all should be you know, very thankful to Elon's hard work because I think that we would not be at the point where we are today if he had not started to push it in 2010, 2011. And so I want to be thankful for his hard work. Now, though I might respect his view, I strongly disagree. And I think, you know, he might have also a strategic perspective, right? At this point, one of his main focus is how do I reduce the cost of the most expensive part of the car? That's the battery. How do I reduce that cost? Is by selling it. The more I'm going to sell it, the more I'm going to be able to go down the experience curve and therefore the cheaper the battery is going to be. When you do V2G, you are starting to say, I'm going to replace some of those batteries that you are putting that are stationary batteries. I'm going to replace them with something that looks less static, but that can still provide the same, the same grid services. And the counter argument to what he says is like, when you have traffic jams in the morning, you have about 20% of the vehicle that are on the road. That means 80% of the vehicles are parked. Most of the time, vehicles are parked. And so I disagree with, with him now. Hey, there is room for a mix of, you know, a polar wall, a polar wall is like a 10 kilowatt hour battery. It's not much. A car is 100, 150 kilowatt hour. It can power your house for a longer period of time. And maybe this is not just to a house, but you know, if you have a house, maybe there are other type of vehicles. Maybe there's a boat that's an electric boat that maybe has an, an 125, an 150 kilowatt hour battery. That boat is going to be parked a lot more often in front of your house than your car. I think it, every, everything's going to have a role. The car is moving around. And yes, you don't use it as the same way you use a power wall, but there is a need for these type of resources and they are parked most of the time. So strongly disagree with him. I would not be surprised if at some point they were turning on and say, hey, actually, just kidding. You know, V2G is actually great. We are turning all our cars into V2G. That's something we could expect also, right? So I think we all have a view. I think it's not one way or the other. I think at the end of the day, it will be a hybrid solution. And uh, we are absolutely convinced that V2G has a very, very strong place to play in that spectrum. And the only thing to add to that, Jonathan, we see it working with our customers today. We've been doing it for a long time and we see the economic value. You just talk to our customers and the benefit they get. One solution is not for everyone. It's a big market. Tesla will have its approach and they're extremely successful. But we see what we're doing for our customers is a value and they see the value. So I think we can both coexist. So another question. So just one real last one. What if all cars become autonomous, then where will Novi stand? <laughs> because no cars will be stationary in that sense. I disagree. You will always have peak usage, less usage. When you look at, at airport, and I'm giving these examples most of the time, people are like, oh, the shuttles at the airport are always running. I'm like, that's not true. There are peak, peak hours, peak weekends where they are all running. There may be always one shuttle on the road at one time, but then you have three or four that are parked in the parking lot. So you always need to have enough vehicles to serve the peaks and the peaks are not happening all the time that's the nature of a peak and so you will always have a set of vehicles that are going to be parked longer period of time than some others and by the way they will also need to recharge at the same time so because we can manage both the recharge and the grid service and how do you manage that so i'm really not concerned about that i think this is more opportunities than anything else all you got to do is see how many parking lots that are across the us and the world and there's they're always full so vehicles are stationary often.
Okay, thank you. I think this is the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for being such a sporting guest on, on this uh, podcast. And I think the viewers would have gotten insane amount of insights to Nuvi. And I really want to thank uh, the both of you for being very generous with your time. Thank you for your time also. We're glad we're able to share more about Nuvi and where we see ourselves going. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets Podcast. If you want to learn more about growth investing, join us today in our free investing class. Simply go to bit.ly slash superstocks J to find out more. That is bit.ly slash s-u-p-e-r-s-t-o-c-k-s dash j to find out more. If you can't figure out the link, we'll leave it in the podcast details. So head there to check it out.